the entire Russian establishment, political establishment, simply can't get its, can't accept the idea of an independent Poland. So, when I say Jogni could certainly not accept the idea of an independent Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic states. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. And in this Easter Monday special, I continue my chat with Adam Zamoyski, but this time looking at Russia's history vis-a-vis its neighbours and how that has burrowed into the Russian psyche to allow her to invade Ukraine in 2022 or 2014, if you want to be wholly accurate. Even opponents of Putin will have this belief. This chat with Adam Zamoyski is a continuation of the latest episode on Napoleon's invasion of Russia, so I do recommend you listen to that. We also talk about how Russia's treatment of its own troops hasn't really changed from 200 years ago through to today. Adam knows Russia very well, having studied its history and particularly in relation to his home country of Poland. So I'll hand you over now to my chat with Adam Zamoyski on how history shapes Russia today. Adam Zamoyski, following on from our chat on 1812 and Napoleon's invasion of Russia, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about how Russia's history can explain... Well, contemporaneously, obviously, then, we're looking... Very interesting seeing echoes of certain things that uh, occurred in that period with today. But in particular, this sort of belief in Russia amongst the elites, I suppose, and, and probably further down, that... In particular, the, the Duchy of Warsaw and Lithuania, these states should not exist. They are part of Russia. And that's why, you know, we see what we see in Ukraine today. And is this something that, you know, it's it's just deep seated within Russia that they are unwillingness to even accept some kind of independence on their doorstep? Yes, I mean, it began, of course, with in, in the 16th century with Ivan the Terrible, who he's not called that in Russia, is he? No, no, he's he's called Grozny, which means the fierce, really. <laughs> um, terrible in the sense of, you know, striking terror into people. And he, um, you know, there were all these independent Russian-speaking principalities of, you know, Skov, uh, Novgorod, and some of them, and Polotsk, and so on. And uh, Muscovy began amalgamating all this. And the idea was... Um, you know, that, that we must collect all the Russias because there were all these Russias. And Kiev and Rus was part of the thing they felt they had to dominate. And gradually this idea of kind of repossessing the Russian world, the Ruski Mir, ironically, of course, the word Mir means world, but it also means peace in Russia. So um, it then began to extend into taking the, a kind of hegemony over the whole Slav world. And it just became a, it sort of became the, almost the kind of mission, the mission of the Russian state was to extend its frontiers to not necessarily with any strategic reason, any economic or other reason. And, you know, the whole, taking the whole of Siberia, it didn't, at those early stages, 
represent a huge economic boon, you know, because it was um, a wild country of um, of trappers and, and 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 you know nobody started mining anything in those days. So um, expansion was in a sense the sort of raison d'etre became the raison d'etre, and once they'd taken something, they began to feel, and this still obtains, as we see, the idea that once they'd got it, it was theirs and had to remain theirs. A friend of mine who was the French ambassador in Moscow in the 1990s said to me, you know, the, the entire Russian establishment, political establishment, simply can't get its can't accept the idea of an independent Poland. So by the same token, it could certainly not accept the idea of an independent Ukraine, Belarus, Baltic states, and so on, which had been part of the Russian Empire for much longer. And the the idea that this Ruski Mir, this Russian space almost, this Russian world, is um, belongs to them and that it's almost a sacred mission to recapture it. And obviously the, the corollary is that if some of the inhabitants of the, the, those parts don't actually want to be part of the Ruskimia, it means that they must have been corrupted either by fascists or by corrupt Poles or wrong religion, you know, Catholic Poles, bad because, you know, orthodoxy is what should rule supreme in, in the Ruskimir and so on. In, in the mid-19th century, the poet Tuchev called uh, the Poles the bad apple in the basket of the great Slav world, corrupting <laughs> and, you know, spreading decay amongst the others. So it, there's almost, a, one can almost say it's sort of pathological. It um, seems like there is a certain, is, is there no self-deception going on? Because deep down, is there any kind of acknowledgement, certainly with someone with a basic historical knowledge, that these states were separate originally? It's a curious thing that the, I think that the people that survive, you see, Britain, France, Holland, Spain, Denmark, you know, they had empires. And then they, they were able to give up empires. Um, the empires were convenient appendages, but they didn't actually, they went, whereas Russia, like ancient Rome, is an empire. <laughs> and ironically, during the 19th century, and, and indeed during the communist period, some of the colonies had a better quality of life than the heartlands of Russia in the 1970s and 80s. In, in Warsaw, for instance, you could see great um, Russian busloads of Russians um, turning up at the department stores in Warsaw to do shopping for things they couldn't possibly get in Moscow. Or in, you know, you know it, it's utterly ridiculous. And, and, and the same thing... Um, was taking place in 19th century Russia. So it's, it's a very curious thing, but the sense of empire is very strong. And even Russian opposition leaders and, and, and liberals, I mean, you know, the, the admirable Mr. Navalny, who you know, is, is extraordinary, he also 
thinks that the Russian, that the Ukrainians aren't a nation and shouldn't be um, allowed to be one. And probably in his heart of hearts also thinks that the Baltic states really do belong to Russia. I know fourth generations of Russian aristocrats, fourth generation descendants, brought up for four generations or three generations in the West of people who've been murdered or and entirely dispossessed by the Bolsheviks, still voiced the view that, well, no, you know, one should give Russia the Crimea and Ukraine doesn't really exist as a nation. And it's, it's terribly embedded, the idea of the um, collective, the, the imperial project as being something that they're all involved with, whether they're grand dukes or the lowliest peasants in the 19th century, or whether they're people at the top of the Kremlin or people living at a standard of living that would be unacceptable in most parts of the world, they still believe in the collective imperial project and will will support it or are prepared to support it. Possibly not when they're sent off to fight without proper equipment and, and, um, and ammunition, which is where it may all fall apart. Another echo of 1812 is you've mentioned the equipment of the Russian soldiers. I mean, 1812, the plight, well, the the lot of the Russian soldier has not does not seem to have changed too much in 200 odd years or probably longer. The treatment, the sort of acceptance that you are, uh, you're there, you're effectively your cannon fodder. And that bleeds through to today. Yes, in in um, in uh, the at the beginning of the nineteenth century in Napoleon's day, you were you were drafted for twenty five years, which really meant that because it was highly likely that you would be killed or die of some disease or starvation or whatever, or possibly desert and run away somewhere, but that even if you came back. If you were in the unlikely case that you were released after 25 years and you were still in some sort of shape, you would be a stranger in your village. So when recruits went off, there was an almost funereal send off in the villages of people saying goodbye. They recruited unmarried people um, and, and, and so on. So, so you were lost. You were really lost to the normal world. You were joined a completely different world. And the only thing you could do was just well, live in that family. Your regiment, your unit became your family, and you lived as best you could within it. The Russian army didn't have, and still doesn't really have, the important middle structure that most European armies have of the NCOs, who are really the backbone of any efficient army. And there was a huge divide in Napoleon's day between the officers who were theoretically all nobles. Okay, there were, there were provincial regiments in which you know, their claims to nobility might have been a bit um, thin, but, um, but on the whole, they were nobles and had pretensions as such and lived a completely different life to the ranks. And in smarter regiments, they didn't even speak the same languages because the really the aristocratic officers, who never spent time with their regiments, spoke French and very little Russian. And obviously the, 
Their troops spoke Russian and very often dialects of Russian, possibly Belarusian or Ukrainian and so on. And indeed, there were plenty of examples of Russian officers being killed by their own soldiers because uh, they'd be speaking to each other in French in 1812. And I believe that that pattern has survived in the Soviet army and in the post-Soviet Russian army. The living conditions for ordinary soldiers are appalling. The way they're treated by their superiors has generally been appalling. The suicide rates amongst Russian soldiers have been sky high throughout the Soviet period, although it was difficult to get information, but it did come out, and and in the 1990s, and I don't suppose that's changed much. You know, traditionally, they had no option but just to get on with it and fight. And the the Russian army, as it evolved in the 18th century under leaders such as Suvorov and, and, and Kutuzov, relied on the bayonet, you know, charging with the bayonet, and in defensive positions of being shown a line and just standing along that line till, I think it was Frederick the Great who said, um, the trouble with Russian soldiers is first you have to kill them and then you have to push them over because they keep standing. Whereas in most armies of the day, you know, Napoleonic, if you really read memoirs carefully and you look at battles carefully, what you realize is that an enormous amount of the fighting wasn't hand-to-hand desperate stuff, but a kind of, you know, a sort of shaka-like march up to um, see. And there was a, quite a lot of watching who would blink first. And certainly when situations became pretty hopeless and there was no point, both sides would see the point of just putting your hands up and saying, okay, right, <laughs> why should we, you know, get slaughtered in this position, which, you know, went, okay, there were, there were remarkable moments when people did get slaughtered, but usually for a specific, to hold a specific point for a good tactical reason or strategic one. But on the whole, there was, you know, the soldiers of either side, of both sides, didn't on the whole hate each other any more than, you know, soldiers in the First World War hated each other and perfectly happy to go and play a game of football if, if allowed to do so. One must always keep in mind when looking at these great campaigns and things that, you know, these armies were made up of regular blokes who <laughs> the professional soldiers liked fighting and they liked winning, but there was no point in going over the top about things. And so, but, but the Russian army was... Because life back home was so miserable and because very often you'd get knifed in the back if you didn't keep going forward and there were terrible punishments, you did go forward. And so they were terrifyingly sort of not so much brave as as obstinate. And um, so, you know, the French, when dealing with the Russians, sort of felt it, you know, that it wasn't cricket. I mean, you know, these, these were different types of rules to fight by and, and very demoralising because it meant that there was far too much death and blood and gore and unnecessary stuff. But there always comes a moment, and it came in, in 1917, for instance, with the Russian army, where they suddenly realise that they're going nowhere, they haven't got anything to eat, they haven't got um, proper supplies, 
They've got no communication with their officers, whom they just see as arrogant um, idiots. And they just say, well, we're going home. And they vote with their feet. And I felt from the beginning of this war in Ukraine that sooner or later, this will happen, possibly in not such a spectacular way, because they might be afraid. But it is already becoming very difficult to make some units go forward at all, from various reports once heard. Um, and there may well come a moment where there will just be a, at least a sort of sit-down strike. But again, you know, recruiting people who are serving long sentences in Russian jails, I should think even going into pretty much unarmed um, up against Ukrainian machine guns is maybe a chance worth taking, who knows? But I mean, the, the, the parallels are extraordinary that in the space of two centuries, there is still this extraordinary divide between the officers and the people who send these people to war and these poor fellows who are, who are just treated as cannon fodder. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for listening. Please do share with those who are interested. It's the best way I can grow the pod. Coming up on the pod, I have top 10 Tudor myths. The film club continues with the 2008 financial crash double bill. The Big Short and Margin Call. In the meantime, thank you and good night. <laughs>